the question just has never come up. I've never, you know, if we say, well, we're going to have an ice cream supper tonight, no one has ever asked me why. We want to have a picnic. No one ever asked why. But if you say, we should fast, the question why comes up pretty often. And certainly, fasting is not something we enjoy. And therefore, we want to know if there's a very good reason why we ought to be doing it, don't we? So I want to examine some scriptures today and see if we can tie this in with today and with us and with meaning for today. I want to go back first, though, and this is just as of the moment. We sang Psalm 46 at the beginning of the service. I wonder if we believe what we sang. I wonder if we really thought about it when we sang it. Do we get to the point when we sing the hymns that we just sing the words and don't pay attention to what they are saying? It's easy to do. Psalm 46 reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. How are we doing with belief so far? We're in a world that we see coming apart around us. Just late yesterday, one of the biggest banks in the country was taken over by federal regulators and shut down. IndyMac, headquartered in Pasadena, California, of all places. And Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, who underwrite or had to do with at least about half the mortgages in this country, saw their stock sink almost out of sight yesterday. They did rally some toward the end, and it makes me wonder if the plunge protection team intervened a little bit and propped it back up by buying their stock, because I can't imagine anybody in their right mind buying it otherwise. But we're in a world that is very quickly coming apart. I read scriptures just last week or referred to some about how our houses would be taken away and we would build them and not live in them and so on. And just here we are seven days later. We've seen banks start to fail, and these are banks basically that underwrite building. Freddie May and, or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac among them. If they're not bailed out, they will fall. If they are bailed out, it'll be with money that is created out of thin air, and it will inflate prices everywhere and just make things worse instead of better. So there is no solution to it. So when we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We need to believe it. The just will walk and live by faith. There are people in this country who are beginning to get nervous. They're afraid the country is in deep trouble. And indeed, it is. But what about us? Do we have comfort? Do we have help? Do we have strength? Therefore will not we fear. It says here that if we believe God, we will not fear. And indeed, he tells us in many places 
under these circumstances, as we see the time coming to build the latter temple, that we are not to fear, but to be of strong and good courage and work. So that he says, therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Everything is going to be turned topsy-turvy, upside down, and inside out in this culture, society, and even the surface of the earth is going to wrinkle and contract with earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes and hurricanes and everything you can name. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, they swell up and burst like a pimple, as did Mount St. Helens some years back. We're right on the edge of this. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Now, he says, we believe God, we believe what we read, will not fear, and though the earth quake and shake and bake, there is a place that will make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. So even in the worldwide turmoil that is breaking forth now upon us, there is a place where God will be in the middle of it, and it will not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Early on in the trouble, God is going to intervene. He's going to bring his people together and protect them in a particular place, and they'll not be moved. It's right in the context, then, of verse 6. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. So God is going to be behind the destruction that comes upon the earth. Satan will be at his right hand to do a lot of it, but God is behind it all. And he has purposed to take care of some people in spite of all that is happening and about to happen. The Eternal of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Eternal, what desolations he's made in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. He will take care of all the armies of the heathen. Be still. Stand still. Don't be agitated. Don't be nervous. Don't be frustrated. Don't be fearful. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How are we doing on belief so far and faith now this states very clearly that there's going to be a time of great trouble doesn't but he says we aren't to fear if we will believe him and do what he says to do that's the way it is now with that preface let's go back to 
Jeremiah 52. Because here is an event that happened, the days of Nebuchadnezzar, to Israel. And the part that we're most concerned about today is down about verse 12. Uh, he besieged Jerusalem beginning in the fourth month. But now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, would serve the king of Babylon into Jerusalem. Now, as a technicality, there's been some argument as to whether this was the seventh or the ninth or the tenth day. Second uh, Kings 25.8 talks about it being the seventh day. This talks about the tenth day. Now, the commentaries have put the story together and say that he actually came on the city on the seventh and wound up burning the temple and the houses on the tenth. So it was a seven, eighth, ninth, tenth day span, four days there in which this occurred. So it would be in that sense not that Kings is contradicting Jeremiah, but that they're telling a different part of the story. Uh, when he arrived and then when it actually happened. You know, you can, you can go to a city for an event, let's say, uh, and you might get there a day or two or three before it happens. And then it does happen. So you could start counting from the time you got into town, or you could start count from the time that the event occurred. And it wouldn't be a contradiction, it would just simply be a clarification. Anyway, I don't want technicalities much today. But here's what he did. He burned the house of the Eternal, and the king's house. So the temple was burned, the, pas uh, the palace was burned, and all the houses of Jerusalem... And all the houses of the great men burned he with fire. So the city had been taken earlier in the fourth month. But when he came in this time, utter destruction. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. So burned everything that would burn and then broke down the walls of the city so that it was total destruction, nothing left, standing, gone, done. This was 2,500 years ago, roughly speaking. <clears throat> now let's go over to the Book of Lamentations, page over in my Bible. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the peoples and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? Now, you and I have, an ex have experienced in the last 25 years the fall and destruction of Worldwide Church of God, which Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 tells us is Zion and Jerusalem. It is the spiritual fulfillment of these prophecies. We've seen it go away just as if it were burned up in fire. Other people own it. The Gentiles have the campuses. They've gone downhill since. The church has come apart. How does the city, the church, sit solitary like a widow? She weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Have we had friends that have become enemies? 
Have we had those that we were close to who will have nothing to do with us now? Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwells among the heathen. So instead of a peaceful church and churches around this country and around the world, now we have people dwelling among the heathen. They hardly have anybody to meet with in most cases. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her in the narrow passages. So there's no rest. It's confusion and frustration. Now we've understood that that applies to the church, but we must also understand that these prophecies apply to the nations of Judah and Israel as well. And that we are right on the precipice, being pushed over the edge at this moment, so that the physical peoples of Israel are going to go through exactly what the church has gone through. The time has come. Our economy is being manipulated and destroyed on purpose. God said he put the most evil of men over the nations. And you can therefore count on the fact that we have the basest, most evil of men ruling our nation today. I will not get into personalities and who we're talking about and call names. I'm just making a flat statement that God said he puts over the nations what they deserve, and what they deserve is the basest of men. So essentially the leadership of this country today, because it is so sinful, is a product of the people themselves. We are an evil, immoral nation, and we have evil, immoral leaders who are bound and determined to turn us over to a new age, a new world order, to rule the world. And you're going to hear more and more about a world economic solution as our economic solution gets worse. You just watch. You'll be hearing more and more about how we need a world organization to take over the finances so that America can't ruin the world. But they will bring America to ruination in order to be able to institute their new world order and their new world economy. They have to get us out of the way. So the handwriting is not only on the wall, it's beginning to affect the pocketbooks as well. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Is the ministry around the world of the church frustrated today because of declining attendance and declining revenues and declining ability to do the work, as they call it? Do our young people have trouble finding anyone to date or marry that is a believer that is in the church? Are some of them getting desperate and beginning to look outside God's people to find those that they can spend time with, date, and in some cases, even marry. Does this ring true or not? Do we walk by faith 
Are we willing to trust God that He will be our refuge and take care of us? Or do we seek our own solutions and ways and measures? Do you believe in God? Or is it just so many words? The church has already come apart. The nation is coming apart now at the seams. And you're going to have people starving and dying of disease and starvation very shortly now in this country and around the world. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the eternal has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Just about to happen. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Are our soldiers already in the captivity of the enemy, pretty much? They can't get out of Iraq. They can't get out of Afghanistan. They're about to go into Iran. It just gets worse and worse. Her princes have become hearts that find no pasture, no grass to eat, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her, her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Here's the problem, verse 8. Jerusalem has grievously sinned. Therefore, she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. The nations of this world are beginning to see through our culture, our society, and our economy, and our fiat dollar. And it is becoming very rapidly worthless. Verse 10, the adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary. Whom did you command that they should not enter into your congregation? They're not supposed to be here, but we invited them in. We are inviting, without guns, the whole Mexican nation to come in, and the Indians, and the Chinese, and the Japanese, and whoever wants to. We don't even have to make it legal. We just turn the eye ahead and let them come on in. And God said we weren't to mix with the other nations. But we're doing it, and we're doing it on purpose. And they're entering into the sanctuary, the pleasant place, the pleasant land that God gave us, the promised land. He promised to us, and we're giving it away. All her people sigh, they seek bread. They've given their pleasant things for food to relieve the soul. They seek wheat. They seek corn. Oh, we don't have any. We're going to make ethanol out of it. You see, we're so selfish that we have to have the things that we think we have to have. The designer this and the designer that. So we have spent ourselves into utter bankruptcy by buying Japanese and Chinese things, and now they own us. They have our money, and we are in debt to them, and we owe interest, and we have no way to pay. And if we print enough dollars to pay it, we'll be like the German country after World War I, 
and it'll cost a trillion dollars for a cigarette. We're headed that way, if there's a cigarette. Verse 17, Zion spreads forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Eternal is commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is a menstruous woman among them. Don't want her. Don't have anything to do with her during that week. That's the way we have become. No comfort. There's no comfort for the church, is there? And very shortly now, there will be no one to comfort the nation when it falls on its behind. And it even says in the book of Obadiah that the Edomites, children of Esau, will laugh and joke about us and over us. That's where we're headed. Chapter 2, how has the eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? And it shows in this chapter over and over how he has done this, how he is going to do it to us because that we have gotten rid of the law of God in our land. Verse 13 of chapter 2, middle of it. O virgin daughter of Zion, for your breach is great like the sea, who can heal you? We could go on and on in the book of Lamentations. In fact, I could use the whole sermon to go through it. And we could get frustrated, perhaps a little discouraged, over what is about to happen in this country. But we need to be realistic about what is going on. Chapter 3 gives us a little hope. We come to verse 18 and it says, And I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the eternal. Things look pretty hopeless. We look pretty helpless, don't they? Things are going bad in a hurry. So just looking at it, walking by sight, I can see how all of us could begin to fear and to be nervous and frustrated and scared. How are we going to save ourselves? Verse 19, Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Now we should be in this position now where we remember all that happened in the church and how we should be humbled and how we should be teachable. And yet we still have those that are full of pride and ego and vanity who are setting themselves up as teachers and they have all the right answers and it goes on and on. God has been trying to humble us and we've resisted. We're not listening to God. We're not paying any attention to God sometimes. God wants us to remember what we've been through these last 20 years and be humbled and meek and get rid of our pride and our ego and have open, teachable minds. We got ourselves into this mess, brethren, and now God wants us to be humbled and teachable, not boasting about how much we know or how smart we are, but to be ready to be taught. You see, he's going to destroy most of the population of this earth to bring them to the point they're ready to be taught. And that's what he's doing with the church right now. But most of the church still does not want to be taught. They're all mouth and no ears. We'd better listen. Verse 20. 
This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now look around and conditions are pretty bad. And I'm humbled by what I've been through. The voice of the prophet here. And I think these things through when I have hope. And the hope is, verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. It is not for our goodness, but his mercy and compassion that we haven't all been destroyed. And it'll be the same way with the physical nation. He's going to save about 10%. The rest are going to die. Americans, brethren, nine out of ten Americans walking down the street this very day are going to be dead in the next few years. Over nine out of ten. He's going to save a small remnant, a small tithe. That's all. Hard to believe. He has his mercies and his compassions. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The eternal is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The eternal is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. He's going to be good to those that will seek him and not seek the ways of this world. You're making a serious mistake if you go out and date outside the church. You're making a serious mistake if you want to work with this world and go its way. It is going away, and only that which is strong and serving God will remain. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. Isn't that what Habakkuk said? I'll sit on my watch and wait. I'll be patient, and God will take care of me. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. We don't have that view in America today. We want our little children to have everything they want as they grow up, and we don't want to keep anything from them. They're not going to be like it was when I was growing up. I didn't have anything. My kids are going to have everything. That's not good for children. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, that he go through difficulties, that he go through trials, that he doesn't get everything easy come. He needs to learn to do without. He needs to learn to do without. So many men have been destroyed by too much success too early or being given too much too early. They need to toe the mark. They need to earn what they have not be given it. God is making us earn his good favor. You cannot earn salvation. It is a free gift. But we must earn his respect. We must earn his desire to give us the good gifts. That's what good works are about. He doesn't make it easy for us, if you have noticed. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom. Through great trial enter the kingdom. And it's echoed here, a young man needs to be under the yoke. That means, like an oxen with a yoke on it pulling a plow, is what that means. 
works, hard works. So he tells us to be strong, to be of good courage, don't fear, and work hard. That is his instruction to us. And he will take care of us if we do that. So we're not to be living in fear. But you notice there, we have no comfort. No comforter. Verse 17 of chapter 1 it was. No one to comfort her. All right, I'm going to change a little bit here, and I want to go to Zechariah 7. We'll get down to the specifics of the fasts of the months here, and then we'll go from there as a springboard into some other things that I hope will give us some comfort before we're done. Now let's notice the context text here of Zechariah 4, 5, and 6. 4 talks about the church being rebuilt under the two witnesses and them giving oil to the church, giving sustenance, giving oil, giving what the church needs. Now God is going to send leadership to do that, but most of the church will not listen to them. Most of the church have their own ideas, most have their own knowledge, most have their own views of prophecies, most have their own views of what the church ought to be doing. And when God sends his leadership, most will not listen. They will not be teachable. They will not recognize what God is doing, where he is doing it. That is clear in Scripture. Only 10% of the church will respond favorably. The rest have their own ideas. Be real careful with your own ideas. But Zechariah 4 shows that. Then chapter 6 talks about rebuilding the temple, how God is going to send out and quiet his spirit in the north country with the horses of chapter 6. And then it gets into talking about the two witnesses again and about the remnant of the people who will come to build the latter temple. So we're establishing the context here of what we're going to see in chapter 7 and 8. And that has to do with these fasts of the months that are listed in chapter 8. Why would he talk about something the Jews have done for 2,500 years in a prophecy about the very end time and the rebuilding of the latter temple and the work of the two witnesses if it didn't have some relevance to that? Why even bother mentioning it? unless it was important. So let's review this a little bit in the light of the context of Zechariah 4, 5, and 6, and what follows in chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, and so on. It came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah. <clears throat> Verse 3 said, To speak to the priests which were in the house of the Eternal of hosts. So speak to the ministry and to the prophets, saying, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Should I be fasting? Now remember the context here. This is not talking to the Jews. If Herbert Armstrong made anything clear, he made clear that the Bible is written to the church. And the two witnesses are in the church. They're not Jews somewhere over in the temple society. 
one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard taught. <clears throat> this is speaking to the church of God in the ministry of God. Remember that Christ told the Jews, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept the church. They were worshiping their father, Satan, the devil then, and they still are. So this isn't talking to the Jews. It's talking to the church at the end time. Speak to the ministry and the prophets, saying, should I fast and weep in the fifth month? What does God say? Verse 4, Then came the word of the Eternal of hosts to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land. Well, most will not listen. But we're on telephone, and anybody can who wants to. Speak to the people of the land, and to the priests, to the ministry, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, even those seventy years... Did you at all fast to me, even to me? Here's the crux of the matter. As a historical remembrance, they fasted 70 years while they were in the Babylonian captivity. But was it to God, or was it for self? Oh, woe is us, our church is gone. Oh, woe is us, our nation is gone, we'll say soon. They were worried about themselves. The crux of the matter was they had been selfish. Now we existed 70 years in the church of God in the end time. Didn't keep these fasts through most of that time. Should we have been? Because God said in Jeremiah and in Daniel... But here at the end time, and Daniel is an end time book if there ever was one, not even understood until the end. But there's 70 years of captivity here at the end time. And through 70 years, the church was built here in the land of Babylon and had to coexist with it, live with it, be in captivity to it, and could not be free. At the end of that 70 years... God gave us opportunity in 2003 to move on to some land where we could become separate from it. To have that freedom and that opportunity. Now, after 70 years, and after destroying the church because of our sin and because we didn't fast for the right reasons, do you think it would make God happy if after delivering us, we began to go back to the world to date, to marry, for fellowship, for friendship, for entertainment? When God has made a deliverance, do you think he would be pleased to see you go back and wallow in the crap you just came out of? I rather doubt it. Did it make him happy when some wanted to go back into Egypt when he brought them across the Red Sea? Did it make him happy when Ananias and Sapphira decided to keep some of the money back for their own selfish purposes 
when everybody else was giving all they had so that they might all survive. I think his answer was quite final there with them. If we start to turn back to this world, God is not going to be at all happy. And we will suffer for so doing. But a lot of the church is doing that. Just giving it up, not enduring. Verse 6, when you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? When do most people fast? On Day of Atonement because they're required to. And when they have personal trouble, trials, difficulties, and they have to cry out to God for help for them. That's generally when most people fast. <coughs> to solve their problem. So it's intrinsically selfish. And that God does not like. Read Isaiah 58. Someone went through it in a sermonette recently, Bill, I think and showed that we're supposed to give our bread to the poor, we're supposed to help others. And then will things turn good for us when we start truly from the heart giving to others. That's when it'll turn around. Not as long as we're selfish. And he addresses that again right here. Isaiah 58 also, by the way, is a very end-time prophecy. Should you not hear the words which the Eternal has cried by the former prophets? We've spent a lot of time with the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the former ones. When Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south and the plain, Jerusalem is desolate now. It's been desolate for many generations, says so in Isaiah 58 and 61 and various other places. But when it was inhabited, people were still selfish. So God removed them and had the walls broken down and destroyed. The original Jerusalem is still desolate today. It's what the Bible says, so it has to be. That means that the one that's over in the Middle East is not the original Jerusalem. It can't be because it's not desolate and hasn't been for many generations. It's that simple. The word of the eternal came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Now here's what he wants us to do. Execute true judgment. Well, that means unselfish, doesn't it? True judgment means that you make right decisions based on what is best for the individuals involved, not make a decision based on what's best for you and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. That is outgoing and giving. It is not selfish. Mercy and compassion to one another. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. Now, this instruction here is get your minds off yourself and take care of others, isn't it? That is the key to success. It is the key to things becoming the way we want them to be. If we truly want to serve and give to others. That's what this is all about, brethren. Let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So he says, didn't Christ say that if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me? When did we see you hungry or naked or, or in need? He made it very clear that what was said in Zechariah here 
was the key to everything. The give, not the get way of life, if you will. We are to be here fasting today for the sake of others, that they might receive blessing and benefit from God. We are looking today at a church that is devastated, and people who are confused, frustrated, discouraged, lost, and don't know what to do. And even the ones who claim they know don't. We're looking at a nation which is beginning to dissolve into frustration, confusion, and lack of food and water and fuel and the things that make our society work. So we have a church and a nation on the edge of absolute destruction. Now God says focus on the needs of others. So this fast is about others. It's not about you and me. It's for others. It's for the purpose of helping others. Verse 11 but when those people heard the prophets, what did they do? They refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder. They stopped their ears that they should not hear. They're doing it now. They did it then. They're doing it now. They will not listen. Yet they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the eternal of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Now God's spirit is underlying all of the Bible. He wrote the Bible for us to be corrected, to be instructed, to be led into the paths of righteousness. That's what these words are here for. And his spirit is underneath it all. Keep that in thought or in mind. We'll get to that a little later. Therefore came a great wrath from the eternal of hosts. The very spirit of God wrote the Bible. It was his mind, his energy, his strength his mentality that caused this book to be produced. And yet, we so often can take it so very lightly because we're selfish. And we want to do what we want to do. We don't want to do what God says. And we simply don't trust him to, take, to turn things out right if we will do it his way. That's where the rub comes. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, says the Eternal, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the peoples whom they knew not. It's happened to the church, about to happen to the country. Thus the land was desolate after them, and that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. Pleasant land means the promised land. Jerusalem, the walls were broken down and destroyed, and it's been desolate since. It has to be raised up in the last days, according to Daniel 9. Again, the word of the Eternal of Hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. He wants us to do what's right. He's jealous for us in a good, positive sense, and yet he's furious and jealous against our sin at the same time. Thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. 
going to be rebuilt. He's going to live in the middle of it. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Can you call Jerusalem over there today a city of truth? As nothing but Protestants, Catholics, Muslims, and Jews, none of whom have hardly any truth. And the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. That is not a holy city today over there. It is Sodom and Egypt, according to Revelation 11. <coughs> Thus says the eternal of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. This is before the millennium. This is when Jerusalem is rebuilt in its own place, Zechariah 12, 6. We'll read on and you can see that. Uh, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, verse 6, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Eternal of Hosts. The remnant in these days. We're talking about the latter days here. We're talking about the building of the latter temple and of Jerusalem, as Daniel 9 shows. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Both are needed. You must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear, in these days. Let our hands be strong. We have much work to do. Now we're in a time and in a tendency when we don't want to be strong and we don't want to work. We want to relax. We want to take it easy. Some of us are getting old and it's hard to work. But God says to let our hands be strong. These words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the eternal of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. And we know that the temple has to be rebuilt today. For before these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in, because of the affliction. For I said, all men, every one, against his neighbor. So just prior to the building of the latter temple, there are going to be bad conditions in the church and in the nation. Are the big companies laying off people right and left? Yes, they are. There's going to be hire for man or beast. Your equipment's going to sit idle, and so will you. The beast then was the beast of burden, the horse, the, the oxen. Now it's pickups and cranes and, and uh, compressors and, you know, all the things we use to work. Be no hire for them. You're beginning to see trucks and work trucks sitting around for sale all over the place because they don't have work. Is this real? Is this now? Are we talking about 2,500 years ago for some Jews? Or is this ringing true this very day in our own country when they're closing big banks and the big government-sponsored mortgage companies are about to go under? And what that will do to the housing market will be a fulfillment of Scripture, is what it will be.
people will be out of their houses. Verse 11, But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal of hosts. What's coming shortly for those who are the true residue of his people is not going to be like it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. <coughs> the confusion we've suffered. For the seed shall be, a it shall be prosperous, and the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. While the country's going down, God's people are going to be blessed. That's why he says don't fear. Do we believe him? Or do we fear anyway? You know, it's hard not to fear. Let's be fair here. It's hard not to fear when you see the world going to hell in a handbasket around you. When you see that these prophecies are beginning to come to pass, it's hard not to fear. It is hard to walk by faith. It's hard to believe God. But he tells us the course to take, and he says, if you take it, you'll be safe. It shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. <coughs> Fear not, but let your hands be strong. I reached under there for a glass of water because my throat's getting raw, and they don't have one for me. This is a fast day. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear you not. We are the spiritual Jews. He's talking directly to us. He's not talking to those physical Jews. In one sense, yes, but their deliverance, their help doesn't come until the millennium or the great white throne judgment. They die in all this. The ones that he's talking about here at the end are us, the church today. We're the only ones that are going to be blessed. The rest of the world will worship the beast. They'll look to the beast for food and for deliverance. We will look to God. They'll be delivered and they'll be killed. They'll take the mark of the beast and they'll die for it. We won't. We will be strong and fear not. Verse 16, these are the things that you shall. He said, don't spend your time in nervousness and fear. Here's what you do. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Be honest. Be strong. Speak those things that are right. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Now God says in the latter temple he is going to bring peace, he said, in this place. And that's what he tells us to be doing, is creating peace. It does not come natural. Peace is not a natural situation among men. Ego, vanity, pride, and warfare 
animosity, fighting, is the natural state among men. You have to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are willing to bend over backward, to take it in the chops, to have their own way thwarted, to do it someone else's way in order to make peace. That's what God is looking for. Now God says that if you have somebody who will not reside in peace and you get rid of them, then peace comes. So we either have to be of a mind to make peace and to get along or God will get rid of us. Get rid of the tailbearer and the strife ceases. That's a proverb. And it's true. We will have peace. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the eternal. He's talking to us, the church, right here. He says, if you want to make this fast worthwhile, and should you be doing it, here's the way to do it. The word of the eternal host came to me, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth at peace. If we will love the truth, and we will love peace. We will treat each other the way God wants us to. He says that we will no longer fast on these days, but they will be joyful feasts. Won't it be neat the day that we can make the announcement, we are no longer going to keep a fast on the days that have traditionally been the fasts of the different months. From this day forward, we're going to have a feast instead of a fast. Would anyone vote for that? Yeah, I would. I'm hungry and thirsty right now. Not too bad because I'm busy, but you are. Because you're only sitting there listening and wondering when is he going to shut up and we can go home and lay down. Maybe, I don't know. But that will be a joyous day. That's, that's four days a year now that we will have a feast instead of a fast. I'm all for it. Let's see if we can get there. All right, I want to change direction a little bit now. It mentions that there was no comforter there in Lamentations 1, verse 17. And it's a pretty heavy lamentation. And what has befallen the church is a pretty heavy wrath of God that has come down upon us. Now, is there hope? Let's go to the book of John. It's in the New Testament. You may have forgotten where it is. We've spent quite a bit of time in the old of late, but everything in the old is reflected in the new. And the new actually echoes what is in the old, and the old is quoted a great deal in the new. 
But we, we stressed the new for so many years in the church that we got unbalanced. We've had to go back and get the balance on it, and I hope we can get the overall balance with all of it, but uh, we had just simply ignored everything that was back there, and it, it was necessary to go back and update and to think it through and understand what those, that those things were talking about today. They're not just old things. And so it is true of these feasts of these months. They are there in the prophecies for the end time. They are not written to the Jews who pay no attention to the Bible. They're written for the people who will read the Bible. And they're written to the church, and particularly to those in the church who are willing to obey God and will be a part of the remnant that build the temple and build Jerusalem here at the end. That's who it's written to. God has not delivered the church much yet. But I think we can safely say that God has given us a great deal and has given us opportunity to be delivered from this world if we will take that opportunity. But if we sit here and get discouraged and frustrated and start going back to the world for the solutions to our emotional needs, we are in deep trouble. And God will weed us out. Let's go to John, chapter 14, and I'll pick it up in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that you may abide, that he may abide, or it may abide with you forever. So Christ was leaving the disciples to be apostles, <coughs> and he had been their comfort during the time he was there. But he said, I've got to go. I'll send another comforter. I'll send one to you. Verse 26, But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So God says that there will be a comforter sent. It was sent to the apostles, and it was sent to the church, and those that would succeed them and follow after them. So, in Lamentations, where it says there is no comfort, we begin to see an answer here. That God would send a comforter. He would not be here himself, but the Holy Spirit would be able to steady us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to lead us, to inspire us, to help us, to bring to remembrance things that we need to know, you know, he, told, he quoted to them constantly out of the Old Testament. The New wasn't even written yet. And he told them, I'll bring into all things the remembrance of the things that I have taught you. Now, has God, through his Spirit, opened up a knowledge of these prophecies to us so that we can truly grasp what is going on here at the end? Unequivocally, Yes. God has given us understanding far beyond what we would have understood ourselves without His Spirit opening it up to us. If you don't believe that, you're in the wrong place. Go somewhere else. If you don't believe the Spirit of God is here and has opened our understanding, then you don't agree with the rest of us and you need to be somewhere else where you can find the Spirit of God. I've even heard it said that the Spirit of God isn't here. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 
It may not be here in power and might yet, but it's here. Do you even begin to think that you could understand the things that we have studied over the last 12 years if the Spirit of God wasn't here? Your mind cannot even be open unless the Spirit of God opens it. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. Don't let anybody try to tell you the Spirit of God isn't here. It is. <clears throat> That's why I and you understand what we understand. We would have never come to it on our own. It had to be the hand of God. We have the Comforter here. We need to call on it. Spirit, the mind of God. We need to call on it daily to give us the help and the strength to endure the things we see about to happen and already happening and not to go the way of this world at the time that this world is going down the toilet. Send it. He'll teach you the things you need to know and bring to remembrance the things that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, gives I you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isn't that what we've been reading? Christ himself says it here in his very own words. Don't fear. Be comforted. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Now, there's always a contingency. You have to keep his commandments. Isn't that what he said there? The verse before he said, I'll send a comforter, he said, keep my commandments. Live my ways, and you will be comforted. If you don't, you won't. Chapter 15, uh, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, it shall testify of me, and you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Isaiah 42, 3, 4, right through that section, mentioned several times, speaking of the church, the end-time remnant, you are my witnesses. So he had witnesses then and the apostles themselves, and he has end-time witnesses now. And it's not just two, it's the whole remnant end-time church that is the witness of God. Not just two men. They'll be involved, but it isn't just them. It's us. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. So he sent his Spirit. It came in power on, on Acts, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And it's been with his church and his people ever since. It is still here and with us. It is going to manifest itself in great dramatic fashion before long. But here, now, it is here to help us, to lead us, to guide us, so that we don't fear, but that we live in trust and in faith and walk God's ways. And if we show that we can do that, he will give it to us in power. Everything in its time. Didn't he tell the young man that it's good to bear the yoke when you're young? So when you're given more, you'll know how to use it and what to do with it? 
Now that principle is what God is using on you and me today. He's letting us go through some hard times, through some trials, troubles, tribulation, some unsettling, some confusing times, and letting us mature spiritually so that when he does give us his spirit in power, we'll know what to do with it. We'll know how to use it. We'll use it righteously instead of selfishly and for our own purposes. God knows exactly what he's doing. So if someone says, well, the, the lame aren't just walking and the sick being healed left and right and things happening like Acts 2, you don't have the Spirit of God. Not true! Was the church of God still the church of God when those mighty miracles and the tongues of Acts 2 stopped? <coughs> yes, it was. Did Paul leave somebody to die? Because he didn't expect him to be healed? Yes, he did. He said so. Had they lost the Spirit of God? No, they had not. God gave them some dramatic happenings to show that he was there to start with. And since then, it's been trial and trouble and tribulation and tests and difficulties so that we might mature spiritually. And for those who will mature, he will give his spirit and power again at the end. For those who do not, it will not happen. Now, maybe I'm grinding an axe here a little bit because a couple, three years ago, I remember somebody saying, well, God's spirit's not here. Yes, it is. You better believe it is. We are basically living together in peace now. And I want to keep it that way. And I don't want us to fear. I want us to be strong and work. Why should we spend all our time fighting windmills, tilting at windmills of those who do not believe what we're trying to do? They need to go away if they're still around. Some have gone away. I'm sad in one way, but I'm thankful in another because the strife, a lot of it, has ceased. It's a lot more peaceful here than it was a few months, a year or two ago. And I am bound and determined to keep it that way through the help of God and His Spirit and by applying some of these scriptures. If people don't learn peace and they don't want to make peace and they won't be teachable, and they want to go by pride, ego, and vanity and their own ideas, then they can go somewhere else and take their ideas with them. That's fine, but don't bring them here. Am I making myself clear? I hope so. All right, Christ said he would send the Comforter. Let's go back to Isaiah 61. Let's get here on a more positive note. Well, this is positive. Really, when God says bear the yoke when you're young so that you'll know how to handle prosperity when you receive it, that's a positive thing. <laughs> we have to go through the trials and the trouble, and God has put this church through all kinds of trouble in the last 20 years so that some might grow and mature. And he's going to put this nation 
through famine, pestilence, and war and have 90%, over 90% killed so that when they come up in the second resurrection, they'll be meek and humble and teachable. Their pride, their vanity, most of it is going to go away. That's what it takes. And that's all he tells us, really, is I'll let you live physically, but crucify the self. The pride, the ego, and the vanity. And be teachable, and be humble, and I'll use you to build my temple. It's that simple. But boy, is it hard for us to learn. <laughs> That's the hard part. <clears throat> All right, Christ quoted... Well, let me, let me go... Let me go to Luke first. Uh, chapter 4. And here I want uh, verse 18. Christ speaking, and there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Eternal. He's quoting from Isaiah 61. But he said that was his message, that was his purpose, that he was to solve some problems. Preach the gospel to the poor. Heal the brokenhearted. Preach deliverance to the captives. We've been in the captivity of Babylon all this time. Now let's combine that with Luke 2. Now, he sent someone ahead of him to prepare the way for him. Now, what was he supposed to do? Go to Luke 2. We read this the other night in Bible study, but it came back to mind as I was considering some things here. Here's Zechariah, the father, once he got his voice back and could speak, said of John the Baptist, uh, verse 76, And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Eternal to prepare his ways. So that is something that is added that Christ didn't say about him because he was Christ. But John the Baptist was to go to prepare the way. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. These are not exactly the same words Christ used, but very similar. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Do we have a church and a nation today that are in darkness and under the shadow of death? Starvation, disease, war. And to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is going to bring peace in the latter temple. Now let's go back to Isaiah. I think I'll go to Isaiah. Yeah, let's go to Isaiah 61 first. Same order that we did this, what Christ said. I'll go back and read what he said. Uh, a little more in the context. He just quoted a little bit of it. We don't have much time, so I'll try to get on it here. <clears throat> Isaiah 61. This is an end-time prophecy. Now, he applied it to himself because it certainly was a fulfillment. 
But how much peace did he bring to the world? How much deliverance? How much conversion did he bring in his first coming? Very little. It was just a very small start with the apostles in the early New Testament church. It certainly had not gone worldwide. In other words, what Christ did here while he was walking the earth was a very, very small introduction to what he is about to do when he comes back and brings world peace. It was very minuscule by comparison. The big deal is yet ahead. Now what he did was a big deal, but it's nothing compared to what he is about to do. So let's understand the overall prophetic picture of what he is about to do, not what he has already done. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he, the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Eternal, the day of the Lord is coming. He proclaimed that then, but it has to be reproclaimed now because now we're on the edge of it happening. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Did God take out vengeance in the day that Christ was here? He spoke not a word. He suffered and died. God did not bring vengeance upon anyone, did he? He said the Jews would be hated and have war from then on, but as far as taking vengeance on the world, he didn't do it. He's about to, though. So this prophecy even supersedes what he did then. It's a now prophecies. Now, how is he going to do it? Verse 3, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion. Now he's, he says, I'm, I'm going to appoint some things to those that mourn in Zion. Those who are in the church and who are mournful over what has happened and is happening. If you and I are mourning in Zion, then this is what he has in store for us, okay? To give to them beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he might be glorified. Those of us who are willing to sigh and cry, as Ezekiel put it, and mourn over the things that are there and who want justice and peace and safety for all and want to give, to take care of the widow and the orphan and those in need. Isn't that what it talked to, in, to us about when it talked about the fast? This is the attitude to fast in. We're not here for our own personal salvation primarily. We are primarily here to provide a way to prepare for Christ to come. And he is going to come to Zion first as an example to the rest of the world of what can be. If we are doing what we should be doing, God is going to give us these things. <clears throat> Trees of righteousness. Righteousness is outgoing love and concern for others. We are to be not bushes, but trees. Worldwide turned into a bush, but pointed back toward Herbert Armstrong. God is going to take a little twig from the top 
quoting from Ezekiel 17. And he's going to plant something small that is going to grow into a great cedar. And it will cover the entire earth, as Nebuchadnezzar's dream showed. And it will shelter everyone. That's what's up. We're not here today to fast so that we might be delivered. We're here to fast so that the world might be delivered. We're here to prepare the way for the work of God himself, of Christ himself. That's what we're here to do. These are the things he says he will do. And they shall build the old ways. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. That is our calling, to repair and rebuild the desolation that has occurred in the church and in the world. We can go all the way through chapters 61 and 62. talks about in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's not talking about the millennium. Those 144,000 who qualify in this age are the bride of Christ. He doesn't have any more bride after that. What is produced in the millennium in the great white throne judgment will be the children of Christ and his bride. The bride ends with 144,000. This is, these are the, new, the first fruits, this is the bride of Christ. So he's not talking about people in the millennium or in the great white throne judgment here. He's talking about us, the bride. And he's going to give us these things. Chapter 62, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation therefore is a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the eternal shall name. That's promised to the churches. That's our ultimate reward. A new name, a crown, of glory <clears throat> will no longer be called forsaken or desolate, verse 4. Verse 6, I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. You that make mention of the eternal, keep not silence. And he gives us instruction here. These are promises that he's made to us. And he said, talk about it. Let it be heard. And give him no rest. Don't let God rest. Till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We're not supposed to be letting God rest a bit. We're supposed to be after him, nipping at his heels. Come on, help us. Do this thing. Bring it on. Prepare us so that we can do it, so we can be strong and of good courage and fear not and work. We are fasting because the church is devastated. We are fasting because the nation is about to be devastated. The Jews saw that was important. 
but God saw it as a far-reaching prophecy that has to do with the church today. We're not supposed to be selfish. We're supposed to be here to prepare that others might be protected and saved and turned to God and blessed. That's what we're here for. Let's close it off back in Isaiah 40. He said there was no comfort in Lamentations. He said he would send his comforter in John. Now let's see what he says in Isaiah 40, leading up to 61 and 62. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. He wants us to be comforted. He sent us his Holy Spirit to comfort us. These words that we've been addressing today should comfort us a great deal. The God is there. We're not to fear. We sang it before the service even started in Psalm 46. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. Haven't we been absolutely devastated and smashed as a church? Isn't our nation about to be smashed before the Gentile kingdoms? He tells us ahead of time, because he's talking to those who are to be comforted now, that he's going to give us double blessing for the double punishment of our sin that we have suffered. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now isn't that what it was said of John the Baptist that he would be doing? And isn't that the preparatory work here at the end that has to be done? If Christ is going to come and do all these things, then these things have to be proclaimed. They have to be taught. They have to be heard. Preparations have to be made. People say, well, the day is, the Lord's almost here. The end of the age. Christ is returning soon. Well, I agree with that. But if that is true, then it is also true that preparations have to be made. Or else it will not happen. Prepare you the ways of the eternal. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, <coughs> and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Those who are humbled, the valleys are going to be lifted up, and those that were mountains, that were governments, and people who thought highly of themselves are going to be abased. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Isn't that what it says of... Uh, Zerubbabel and Zechariah 4. <clears throat> Rough will be made plain. Speaking of the end time work of God. The glory of the eternal shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. He is going to show his glory in his people at the end who prepared the way for him. Why are we preparing it? What did Zechariah tell John the Baptist? to bring salvation, to bring conversion, to bring peace. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah 61 and 62 and what Christ quoted in Luke 4, 
chapter 4, verse 18. These are the things that must be done. The fasts are more um, compelling, more desirable, more, more needful now than they ever were after Jerusalem fell and the walls were knocked down and it became desolate and has been desolate ever since. Because now the church has been knocked down. And now this pleasant land, this promised land, is going to be taken away and made desolate again. God made it desolate, he brought us back, and we sinned again. Now he's going to make it desolate again. And we will be the ones who repair the breaches, as it says in Isaiah 58, if we will fast to give our bread to the poor, to give to the needy, to help. We are not out here in this desert to save ourselves. We are out here in this desert to build a temple. We're here to build Jerusalem. We're here to be a light to the Gentiles. We're here to prepare a place to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's why we're fasting today.